doing a series called The Inside Job, and so if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel, and thank you, Michael, for all the behind-the-scenes stuff that you do. Let's just give a hand for Michael. He keeps a low profile, but he'll be up on the bass, and then he'll fix the sound, and then he'll go back on the computer, and then Victoria and all the stuff she does behind the scenes, and Miss D, Julene, and uh, all the stuff. And then, by the way, I, me I mentioned it in Sunday school, but uh, I want to mention again in this main hour, uh, two kids got saved last week during church, so praise the Lord for that. And amen, yeah. And so I think, uh, I think you know, I think that's great. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. Dramatic pause. Dramatic glass removal. God says, hundreds of years before the cross, which makes this possible, this wasn't an old covenant promise, this is a new covenant reality, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take away the stony heart. Obviously, people, if you have an amethyst, or a quartz, or a granite heart, <laughs> you're not living, right? So what he's implying is stones don't have life. So this hard heart that is separated from God, which he does not desire, he's going to surgically remove this stony, lifeless, dead, cold heart that everyone's born with in, in the world, unfortunately, He's going to take it out, and he said, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a heart that's, that's alive, one that's compatible with the creator. And I will put my spirit within you, location, 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 and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, Jesus is going to be the dynamic of his own demands. If he wants us to love as he loves, he's got to give us the batteries to do it. And so he's taking out the old heart that couldn't, and he's given us the new heart that can, and he is making it so we could enjoy his presence and enjoy each other and live life as God intended, where the image that was lost is now restored, and we're now in union with God, and we have the opportunity to enjoy this union and oneness with others as well. So let's look at the next slide, if you will, and hold it there for a second, because I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, then I want to talk to you about this. Jesus, I thank you that you're the wonderful counselor, which means you're the ultimate therapist, but you're the great physician, which means you're the ultimate surgeon as well. And I thank you that we can't do heart surgery on ourselves, we can't change our hearts. We might be able to change our behavior and change some things here and there, but Lord, you're the one that makes ultimate, infinite, everlasting, eternal changes, something that we can't do for ourselves that you've done for us. And thank you that you've done for us, out of love, given us a heart to not only to know you and to love you, but to make you known and to love others. It's a new heart, which has new desires. 
And so teach us what this means in our new identity that it may spill over into our new activity. And I, I pray today, Lord, that as those have gathered here today, that it would be an encouragement to them. And um, yeah, I pray for the babies here too. <laughs> Phoebe, Oakley, and all those little kids. So exciting to see. I just pray for the moms and the dads as well. And those that couldn't be here, I pray that you'd encourage those. And those that are listening online, I pray that you would uh, minister to them as well. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, to God be the glory, amen. So our planet is unique. And I'm setting you up for this whole idea of this Trinity of Trinities explanation here. This is going somewhere, trust me. Out of the 5,000 discovered exoplanets, and this is terminology that astrophysicists use and cosmologists and stuff like that would use to describe planets that could potentially be inhabited either by us or have the right sort of ingredients to contain life. Now, with the James Webb Telescope and other telescopes that are able to look far out into the heavens, as the Bible describes it, that would be the second level of heaven. The first level of heaven that the Bible describes is where Boeing flies. The second level of heaven is where NASA tries to fly, and Bezos, and Musk, and <laughs> all the space programs, and NASA. But out of the 5,000 discovered exoplanets, uh, which is quite a bit, but not really compared to how many billions and billions and billions and billions of stars which have their own planets and their own solar systems, times in infinity. I mean, really, it's just so, the glory of God, when I, when I consider the heavens, you know, when I, when I consider it, I, and the splendor, the, the heavens speak of the glory of God, and he, no, he names the stars all by name, and he knows them, and he spoke them into existence. But when we look into them, and we say, is that planet habitable? Is that planet habitable? Out of the 5,000 that are kind of in relative proximity to where we are, that we could never really get there, but we're just kind of toying with the idea. And that's part of why NASA launched this James Webb telescope, to look for sort of habitable planets or life on other planets. Out of the 5,000 that we've discovered, all 5,000 are either too hot or too cold, which introduces us to the Goldilocks principle. Remember that nursery rhyme story? This bed is too soft. This bed is too hard. Oh, this bed is just right. This porridge is too hot. This porridge is too cold. Oh, this porridge is just right. Guess what? Earth is not, number one, too hot. Number two, too cold. It's number three, it's just right. And I want to introduce to you this idea of this trinity of trinities. Of course, the word trinity is not in the Bible, but the, the trinity is all over the Bible. One off the top of my head, 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the, the Word, which is Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So it's not one plus one plus one equals three. It's one times one times one equals one, and that's God. But in speaking to the trinity of trinities, Kent Hoven, if you remember him, said this. Time, space, and matter is what we call a continuum. All of them have to come into existence at the same instant. Because if there were matter but no space, where would you put it? 
If there were matter and space but no time, when would you put it? You cannot have time, space, or matter independently. You have to come into existence simultaneously. The Bible answers that in ten words. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heaven, there's space. And the earth, there's matter. So you have time, space, and matter created, a trinity of trinities there. You have a trinity of trinities created instantaneously, and the God who created them has to be outside of them all. So let's look at this trinity of trinities. Time, space, and matter, three. But of the three, there's three and three. There's a trinity of trinities. Time has past, present, future. Space has height, width, and depth. And matter is solid, liquid, gas. Isn't that fascinating? Trinity of trinities. And that's not the only place that you could kind of see this pattern, if you will, if you, if you consider the Old Testament tabernacle, which later became the temple, which is why they're fighting in Israel and uh, in the Middle East today, is because they want to rebuild the temple, Jerusalem, the burdensome stone hanging around the neck of the nation, the cup of trembling, the Bible calls, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Before they got there, they traveled through the wilderness and they set up this tabernacle, which later became the permanent, well, it's not so permanent, it hasn't been there for 2,000 years, but it became the temple in Jerusalem. And you see three parts of this. When you go in, there's the outer courts, and there you have the brazen altar. There's four horns on each of the four corners where they would tie the sacrifice down. They would, you know, slit its throat. (laughs) It's a bloody religion. Yeah. They would take the blood in a basin and they would hyssop, which is kind of a bushy plant. They would take the, the, that and then they would sprinkle it in the mercy seat. Right, right before that is the brazen laver or the, where they would wash themselves and the priest would have to make sacrifices not only for the sins of the people but for his own self. You'd go into the holy place and right ahead of you you'd have the table of showbread, you'd have the lampstand and um, the altar of incense, and because there was no windows in there, uh, the light of the lampstand provided it, there's no seats uh, in there as well, and then from the holy place, there's the veil that divided from when you would go into the mercy seat, which was that gold box with the, the cherubs with their wings pointed towards each other. And that lid would be lifted up, and inside would be manna, Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments. And so that was the Holy of Holies. Only only the high priest from a certain gender, a certain age, a certain tribe, at a certain time could go in there. Access denied. So access denied for the Gentiles could go in certain parts, but you would have to be of the tribe of Levi to go in the holy place, and they would do priestly duties, but you would have to be the high priest to go into the holy of holies. So this is, a, this is kind of a picture, so to speak, of your body, which would be the outer court, your soul, which would be the holy place, and the spirit, the holy of holies. Next, if you think about this sort of triadic uh, view or it, as it pertains to 
men and women, were, they, the fancy term is called a trichotomy, to describe you as a person. So in a trichotomy, you would have your body, which is your physiological self. It's where your conscience towards the world relates to your environment, thus your five senses. Then you have your soul, which would be your psychological. And again, that's where we get the word psychology because soul is translated psyche in the Greek. That's your self-consciousness. It's your mind, your emotions, your will. In other words, your, your thinker, your feeler, your chooser. And that's how that relates to others. And then you have your spirit, which is your intuition, your conscience, your communion. And it's, it's your God consciousness. It's where you relate to God. Now, the Bible says that all of us in this room were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were spiritually dead. We had a live body, we had a live soul, but we had a dead to God spirit, but we did have a spirit. The only thing with that spirit is that it was alive to the world. And so you can be spiritual and still not be a Christian because you have three parts. Your dead spirit, though, is that stony heart. It's that, it's that, it's dead, it's to separated with God, but it's very much alive to this world and to the, the God of this world. That's why Jesus said to the religious Pharisees who were spiritual, he said, you're of your father, the devil, because they had a, a living body, they had a living soul, and they had a dead spirit that wasn't connected to God, but it was connected spiritually to the prince and the power and the spiritual entity of this world, which is the devil. And that's not God's final destiny for mankind. But let's kind of go back to biblical archives and look at how all this started. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and the Lord God made mankind from the dust of the earth, body. And he breathed into him the breath of life, spirit, because God is a spirit. And man became a living soul. Now he was conscious. And now he, he, has, a, he has a psyche. He has, he has a mind. He has a will. He has emotions. And so Adam was created perfect. Eve, perfect. Perfect body, perfect soul, perfect spirit, in union with God. They had everything and lacked nothing. Continuing on this trichotomy vein of thought here, 1 Thessalonians plays this out as well. In verse, chapter 5 and verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, I love that, he's the God of peace. You lack wisdom, you lack anything, you lack peace, go to the one who owns it. If you're the God of something, if you're the God, you know, the God of a thousand cattle on a thousand hills, you own it. He owns peace. He is peace, and he will set you apart through and through and make your whole spirit, your soul, and your body kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And I love the chronology or the order that God lays this out, because really, who you really are at your core is you are a spirit who has a soul who just happens to live in not Iron Man, but Soft Man suit. <laughs> Think about it with Iron Man, you know? There was that outer part, and then you saw uh, Tony Stark on the inside, 
and then you saw his heart that gave him the energy. Kind of a weird thing, right? But you have a body who happens to have a soul, your psyche, your mind, your will, and emotions, that happens to have a spirit, but who you really are that's going to live forever, that's clean, that's close, that's compatible with God, is you are a spirit that happens to have a thinker and a feeler and a chooser that happens to live in this temporary body until it's changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and it's glorified, and it's, it's made fit for, the, for kingdom responsibilities in God's domain and the unseen that will become the seen realm and sometime coming to not a theater near you, but a culture near you. Look at further in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 plays this out as well. For the word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit. Surgically, God could, he could differentiate between your feelings and your emotions and what what's really going on at the core of who you are and the connecting point where God lives in the holy of holies from the, the holy place. He could divide from, from those and he could distinguish because there is no veil. He, he could show you what is your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions and what is actually true in your spirit of who you really are. And you just happen to have a body that he's graced you with, that he's, he's provided uh, for you to walk around in. And it's kind of like your earth suit, your container uh, for God. So our bodies connect to our three-dimensional world. Our souls connect with other people in the solical, social, relational, and emotional world or level. And our hearts or our spirits is where we connect with God. Unfortunately, when Adam and Eve sinned, in the day that they did, as God said, you will die. The day that you eat of this no-no tree is the day that you will die. And they did not die physically that, that day, and they did not die solically that day. They died spiritually that day. They lived hundreds of years afterwards with a soul to think and to feel and to choose and to have emotions and to, and to build and to do things and to plan. And they had, they had a mind that was uh, incredibly made by God, but they weren't connected with God anymore because they died that day spiritually. And at that point, they were God-conscious, and then they became self-conscious, and it's been the curse of mankind and womankind ever since. That's why we've got body images. That's why we've got mental health image or problems. That's why we struggle. That's why most of us go around thinking about ourselves. We're Am I good enough? Am, am I okay? We pull pedals all the time. Do they love me? Do they love me not? I don't know if I'm good. I don't know if I'm accepted. And we're self-conscious. We're always scanning the room and we're looking for validation and worth and approval and acceptance. And we're all, we're, it came from there. That was not as God intended. They didn't even know they were naked. They weren't even self-conscious about their nudeness. <laughs> They were God-conscious, and right when they sinned, they started to, to develop religion and to cover their, cover their shame. And I've preached on this many times, but God came along and said, shame off you. It's unfortunate that you did this. I told you the consequence. You're dead. You're out of the garden. You're separated. And the image that was given to them by grace, uh, that was a body, a soul, and a connected to God's spirit, was then severed. 
and needing, needing to be restored back to the original uh, image that God had created. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk to you about, kind of popular in Christianity, I'm not, don't get it confused with the gap theory in Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, but I'm talking about when I say there's a gap non-theory or great chasm that uh, has taken place when people don't have a regenerated born-again spirit or a new heart or a heart transplant. There is a separation. But after they receive this new heart in the Holy of Holies, you, I, become the temple of God. You're no longer separated from God. You are connected with him and sealed by his spirit unto the day of redemption. God is a spirit. And I'll get to this verse later, but I'll just, I'll just kind of get this rabbit as it's walking by. John 4.24 puts it this way. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not a man that he should lie, the Bible says. God is a spirit. That means he created the Trinity of Trinities from the Trinity, spoke the Trinity, time, space, matter, but he lives outside of these things. And while we're in this dimension and in this time and in this place and in this space, in order to connect with God who's outside but can be inside at, at the same time because of his om, omni-everything, his omni-attributes, um, God is a spirit. And in order to connect with God on a spiritual level, we need a heart transplant. We need a heart transplant. We need to be made clean and close and compatible with God. So Isaiah 58, 59, verse 2 puts it this way. What has separated you from you and your God? But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. God never intended for there to be a separation or a gap. He never wanted a gap in the garden. He never wanted a gap ever. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but to all to come to repentance so they could enjoy union and oneness uh, and fellowship with the Lord forever. But what happened? Well, Adam and Eve, the day they... they believe the lie they basically they didn't think jesus was enough like maddie was singing they didn't think he was enough they thought that well you know if god is so good why is he preventing me from eating of this tree that's going to give me death i need knowledge of evil i need to know what's evil what is evil anyways i guess i know kind of what's good but you know that's good but what's evil and i could become a god huh, does that mean I get to call my own shots and I'm answerable to no one? That sounds pretty good. And so they sinned, and the day they did, they were separated, and that, that image was severed, and that, that spiritual connection was, was broken, so to speak. And then after, after that happened, the image of God, this is not very popular in churches, but if you just read the Bible in its flow, you, the Bible will interpret the Bible what happens, the very next thing is in Genesis chapter 5, look. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam, which just in the Hebrew means man. Eve means the mother of all living. In the day they were created, and Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his own image. Ah, okay, 
So that's where Romans 5 comes in. He's, he says, all have sinned. And, and after the likeness and after the similitude of their sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So it says that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. I kind of but, butchered that, but read Romans 5, 12. And you'll see that there's this progression and succession of sinners begetting sinners, sinners begetting sinners. And, and so, so we're after, I'm after the image of my father, I'm not after the image of God. I mean, generally speaking, because he created everyone, but spiritually speaking, no, I'm not connected to God. Something needs to take place to get that image that was lost, that, that oneness, that unity, that connection, that, for, that forever uh, bond that could never be broken. I need help. I can't do this on my own. So what was lost in Adam and Eve was restored in the last Adam, the Bible says, called Jesus Jesus is the direct image of God and was not born a sinner separated from God as we were. Adam was created perfect when he was created with a perfect spirit and a soul and a body. Jesus was born perfect of a virgin. Uh, that's why he, wasn't, he didn't carry the, the image of mankind. He was inserted from heaven to earth to bypass that whole thing, to come fully loaded, so to speak, with a perfect spirit, a perfect body, and a perfect soul. So that was Jesus. And he is the image of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, if you would. Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, meaning God, he, up, he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 2 Corinthians 4.4 the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, who is the, the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. I love this passage. I love all those verses. But this one's really interesting. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, meaning those who would receive him, he was the first of this new race that we enter into. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. In other words, all the demons and all the fallen angels must respond to the captain of the Lord of hosts. The, word, the Lord of hosts is used so, more often in the Old Testament, but it means he's the... He is the commander-in-chief of the armies. Host means armies. And all of these fallen, demonic, and fallen angelic beings that want to corrupt mankind and that seem to be in re constant rebellion against God, they bow the knee to their commander-in-chief, Jesus. And by him, all things consist. He's the glue that holds everything together because he spoke it into existence and he could speak it right out. And it's very interesting how the, the unseen comes into the scene and how they interplay and interface with one another. For example, in John, you'll know this chapter well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But down in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is truly God and is closest to the Father, another translation, the King James says, in the, the bosom or the heart of God, he has shown us what God is like. He has revealed God. 
Remember in John 14, Thomas says, hey, show us the Father and it'll be sufficient. And Jesus said, have I been so long time with you, Thomas? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, not what God looks like, but who God is like. God is, Jesus is the heart of God. He, he is how you see him with children, how you see him with the rejects of society, how you see him handle situations. You're seeing the heart of God in person. He's the word that became flesh. In other words, he was the, Jesus is the translation of God. We don't speak God. We don't speak spirit. So Jesus said, I will put on skin and I will be the translation of the invisible God to the world. I, he is the image of God. So Jesus is that grace who is a person of God that bridges that gap between us. So you've seen probably crosses and stuff that make bridges. But the grace of God that appeared to all men who brought salvation, as it says in uh, Titus. This is Jesus. Jesus, he stands in the gap. He becomes for us what we couldn't become for ourselves. And so, Jesus is the grace that removes the gap or the separation between us and God. I haven't quoted this in a long time, but there's two women of antiquity that I, I respect that were very deep spiritual theological thinkers. One is Reese Howell. She said this, so near, so very near, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of God's Son, I am as near as he. It's a great quote. Sounds poetic. But the theology is so accurate. You can't get any closer than Christ in you, as Maddie was singing earlier. You can't get any closer than not I, but Christ in me. You can't get any nearer than God moving into your life. Dane Gullion of Norwich said this hundreds of years ago, betwixt God and me, there is no between. Betwixt God and me, there is no between. No gaps. No gaps. I'm not, getting, I'm not getting closer to God. God, where are you? You know, the New Age movement says, look within. But what they do with their dead spirit, they're spiritual when they say that, when they meditate, when they've got certain activating chakra points or whatever sort of mantras bring them into the spiritual uh, you know, enlightenment or, or, or self-awareness, and they'll use a lot of buzzwords that it's just hijacked biblical truth. Because what we have, and they don't have, is we have the God of the universe who cleaned us to then contain in us his life. They're looking to themselves as the great I am. But we look to the great I am uh, who is the self-existent one, the uncreated creator who moved inside of our lives by first removing our heart and then giving us a heart that could be um, compatible with his life. So there's no gaps between God and the believer. We're one with him, united forever, sealed by his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, in the context of them sleeping with prostitutes in Corinth, Paul wants to instruct them. He says, look, when you go sleep with hookers and prostitutes and, 
and male or female, by the way. When you do that, that's fornication, but you're also joining the Lord into that experience. And he that commits fornication or she that commits fornication sins against their own body, he says, because you're taking your body and your soul and your spirit and you're uniting it into a way that is getting a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. And so God says you can't do that because you're taking the Lord into that experience. And so then he makes this quote that you and the Lord are joined together, you're one spirit with him. Now, in order to be restored into a dynamic love relationship and intimate fellowship that God designed and desired for us, we need to put our faith alone in Christ alone and believe the gospel and become born again. Now, you've heard this phrase over and over and over again, but why does he say you must be born again? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and it has a heart of stone, and it's not compatible with God. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and now, because God is a spirit, you can now connect with God and be sealed with God's spirit and, and enjoy fellowship as God intended in the garden that was lost but now restored by Jesus on the cross. Now, Jesus answers this question in John 3, familiar passage, but I'm going to read it from a different translation to kind of maybe get, turn the diamond a little bit to see it from a different angle. Now, Jesus answered Nicodemus, I assure you, everyone must be born again. Anyone who is not born again cannot be in God's kingdom. Nicodemus said, how could a man who is uh, already old be born again? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus answered, believe me when I say that everyone must be born from, wa from the water and the spirit. Now, the new moms in here, you know, you're probably like, I remember, even with, with Tabitha at least, I don't see the moms yet right now. Their moms are doing mom things. But, you know, remember, I want this baby to come. You know, when is Oakley going to come into the world? And, well, James, if you were at home doing whatever you're doing, you're kind of like, I don't know when it's going to be. If, if Tabitha were to say these words, my water broke, you would know to get the minivan loaded and head to the hospital. That's what he means by born of the water. It's not water baptism. It's because he's using it in the context of that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Every person born in here that came into the world, and the Bible uses this phrase in the Old Testament, it's called the matrix, which is another word for the womb, which is interesting, look it up. But when you're born of the water, you break your... You break the, the your, well, you know the biology behind it. <laughs> the water's broke, and you're ready to come into this world. And so that's the physical birth. Then Jesus said, believe me when I say you must be born of the water and spirit. Anyone who is not born of the water and spirit cannot enter the, God's kingdom. The only life people get from their human parents is physical, but the new life that the spirit gives a person is spiritual. Don't be surprised that I told you, you must be born again. And here's a verse I quoted previously, but now it's on the screen in John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Look at these must words. This is the very next chapter where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and she wants to talk about religious topics. 
Where are we supposed to worship Jesus? Over here, over there. She wants to talk about the places of worship. Is it that denomination or this denomination? Is it that religion or that one? Is it this temple or that temple? And Jesus knows the smokescreen, and don't fall for these religious smokescreens. He puts it back to the person of worship, not the places of worship, which people think, oh, I'm, I really witnessed to them with my apologetics, and I told them the whole Protestant Reformation history, and, the, you know, <laughs> don't fall for it. Go right to the person of worship, like Jesus. He said, answering her arguments and questions, religious, he, he said, hey, look, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must, just like you must be born again, in order to worship God, you must have a spirit to worship a God who is spirit. In order to be clean, close, and compatible with God who is a spirit, we must be born again of his spirit. Religion won't cut it. Only rebirthing will. So that brings me to kind of the last, last and final point. We need a new heart transplant. We need a new heart transplant. What does this mean? Well, from Adam until Jesus, people only experienced God's presence when he would come and go or reveal himself in different times and in different ways. And you know that from reading the Old Testament. But he wouldn't dwell in someone's heart and make residence there. Even Solomon said, I've dedicated this place to you, and he's building the temple. And he's like, who am I that I should do this? You know, and, and he says, not even the heavens or the heavens of heavens can't contain you. And God answers like, uh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the place that you shall make me? And it is kind of, kind of weird when you think about it. I'm going to make God a, a building. I'm going to put God in a, in a box. He doesn't want to dwell in buildings. He wants to dwell inside of believers. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and you are not your own. You are bought with the price. Therefore glorify God and in your body, which are God. So God is always, has always loved his beloved creation of men and women. So he came as a human to do for us what we humans could not do for ourselves. Jesus bridged the gap, that separation between God and mankind, and became, he became the separated sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus had to completely forgive us in order to completely fill us with his life. Why? What has separated you between you and your God? Sin. So sin was the problem. So he had to remove the sin to place his life within. Here's some quotes on forgiveness. Go to the next slide on forgiveness. We have been forgiven. Therefore, we can forgive because we've been forgiven. People that don't know this, like Jesus kind of said, if you've been forgiven little, you'll forgive little. If you realize what, what, see, forgiveness is free to us, but it costs Jesus his life. And it costs much more than just that, leaving heaven, the humility, the taking on a body, the love, the rejection, all of that, not only the physical pain, but he took condemnation from the Father. He took wrath. He took punishment. Therefore, there's no condemnation. There's no wrath. There's no punishment left for you because Jesus stood in the gap and took it all upon himself. We have been totally forgiven. Therefore, we can forgive others as we have been forgiven. Look at this next passage, or quote. 
in order to have eternal life, you must first receive eternal forgiveness. I don't know who said that, but it's accurate. You need to be forgiven in order to be filled with his eternal life. Go to the next slide. Forgiveness, it's once for all or nothing at all. Any middle ground is an insult to the blood of Jesus Christ. Andrew Farley, he's really good on this subject, by the way. Next quote. Dan Stone, um, he wrote the book, The Rest of the Gospel. I highly recommend it. God not only gives us a new life in Christ, but a new past. Our sins are not only forever forgiven, but totally forgotten. Amen. That's a good one. Next one. Don't leave church unchanged. Leave church unchained. Christ not only came to forgive us, but also to free us. Jen, I got this quote. Where's, where's my lovely wife? <laughs> Nick with no arms. Remember, we were in San Diego at my cousin's church. We're, they did this worship, and it's a mega church, and we're sitting way up in the nosebleed sections. And um, I think it was like when the Chargers used to be in San Diego. It was when we were there. And one of the Charger guys started the church or something. It was just a mega church. And we're way up in the high section. And they're jamming for Jesus and all the lights and the smoke. And, the, you know, they got this guy in this drummer cage. It's all lights. And it's all, you know, it's just all that. And then everyone bow your head on closer. And then we open our eyes. And there's this guy with no arms and no legs on a table. And I was like, what? I thought it was a skit. It's an, it was an actual guy who I really fell in love with him and the message. And I got this quote from him from that experience when he was, you could look at him, look, Google him, or YouTube, Nick with no arms. He has a phenomenal ministry about what he's able to do and accomplish through Christ with no arms and no legs. They literally had to put him up there on the table. I thought it was a skit. Like something, you know, maybe you and Mike would do. You know how someone gets behind you and you do the little the hands and the legs thing? I thought it was that. Here's my favorite quote. Next slide. Go and live. You have been forgiven on someone else's dime. Jennifer Pafford, <laughs> my lovely wife. Go and live. I love that, babe, because you've been forgiven on someone else's dime. You've been forgiven on someone else's dime. Uh, my brother will never listen to this message, but it's like, he's, he, I drove him to the airport and he gave me the keys to his big old Suburban and he has the fast pass because um, he commutes for work a lot. And I'm like, he's like, there's money on there, you could use it, and there's a full tank of gas. And I'm like, oh, heck yeah. So I'm driving down the fast path, the, the new one, you know, on the 405, and I'm already like judging everyone. I'm like, <laughs> that's driving in like rush hour stuck traffic. I'm like, so lame. If you just have one of these white boxes, I'm not gonna buy one on my dime. I'll be the other guy I'll look into those fast passers. I'm like, yeah, I enjoyed that for a day. But go and live. You've been forgiven on someone else. When it's someone else's dime, right? It's like it, things are different. It's like people in government. Like, what's a $20,000 hammer? Who cares? Right? It's just the taxpayers. <laughs> but as we continue on, Jesus takes out the old stony heart, the dead one, and gives us a new living one, spiritually united and connected to God. So just as we could not crucify ourselves, think about it, nail in my feet, ow, 
nail in my, because I'm right-handed, my left hand. Oh, <laughs> hi, everyone. Can't quite crucify. I'm still going to die, probably, but it's not a full crucifixion. Just like if you're to, you could be like, okay, I'm going to do heart surgery on myself. Drink a bunch of Jack Daniels because you have no access to, like, anesthesiology or anything. I'll get out my utility knife that I use with Eric for work. It's pretty sharp. And, you know, oh, but I can't go much further. I wouldn't even get that far, actually. Um, so go to the next slide, if you will. God performs heart surgery. This is, a, this is not folk or fake. It's real. Well, I don't know anymore with AI. It probably is fake. Deep fake heart surgery. Generic photo. You couldn't do heart surgery on yourself. You just couldn't do it. I can't imagine when Jennifer, my wife, had to get surgery. This was during COVID, and she's had other ones too, but the recent one, that she would check herself into Kaiser Permanente and go up to the operating prep room, give herself her own an anesthesia, and just as she was knocked, knocked out, right, then cut herself open, find her gallbladder of all the gall, and then successfully remove it, and then sew herself back up, walk herself into the recovery room, and then walk herself out. It's a lot more complicated than that. Neither can we give ourselves a spiritual heart transplant. You can't, you can't do it. You're, you, this is impossible. It's impossible. And I think with good intentions, religions all around the world are without trying to come to God on God's terms, like you must be born again, you must have your heart removed, and I must give you a new one and put my spirit within you. Without, they're like, no, no, that's impossible. You know, me, no, there's got to be some other way. I know I'll try morality. I know I'll try abstaining from this. I know I'll try really hard to do this. And it just is not going to work just as giving yourself heart surgery would not be successful. So this is the promised loving surgical work of the great physician, God, our Father, on our behalf to remove our incompatible hearts and replace it with a compatible one. Back to our text, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your body, your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, a living one, one that works, at least works with, it interfaces with this, the unseen realm, it interfaces with God who is a spirit, that we must worship God to have a, a, a spirit that is compatible with him. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. So, Ezekiel also said this previously in chapter 11 and verse 19. He said, and I will give you one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the stony heart out of your flesh. And this is only made possible by the forgiveness of Christ. If Christ never forgave all of our sins, he would never be able to fill us with his life. So he forgave us and he removed our sins and he actually crucifies our heart he kills it 
I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He didn't reform your heart. He didn't like put extra, you know, like here's an extra spiritual valve or here's a little, here's a spiritual pacemaker. He completely removed it and gave you a new one that's clean, close, and compatible now with God. Jeremiah 24 and verse 7 says, And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Jehovah, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Why? Because God wants, he wants relationship. He's not interested in your performance or your religion. He wants relationship. And in order to have a relationship, he needs to give you a new heart. He needs to be able to communicate with you in a language that's compatible. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is very familiar, so that if anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new way that you relate to God, a new way that you relate to others, a new way that you contain the life of God. This is all new because you've had an old heart removed and a new heart uh, in exchange. So what does all this mean as I wrap this whole thing up? What does all this mean? It means that Jesus' prayer in John 17 has been answered. And the, the high priestly prayer of John 17, if you remember, he said, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. I and them and they and me and you and us. He prays that we would have this compatibility, that we would be synchronized and united forever. And this is right before Jesus is going to the cross. Now, they enjoyed Jesus before the cross, but Jesus was an external person that when, you know, when John was laying on the chest of Jesus, you think, well, he is, he's as close to God as anyone on earth. And he was close physically, and he was there leaning on the, and saying, who's going to betray you, Jesus? Is it I? Is it him? Remember, he's having that discussion, and he's, could you imagine being that close with Jesus that you're just, you're just casually, like, lean, you're just leaning on, I remember the first time I went to India and I saw um, a bunch of Indians from India holding hands walking down the street, and I told my friend Tim, I'm like, I thought India was conservative, and he's like, what do you mean, and I'm like, I, you know, even the homosexual community in our culture is really not that old, I mean, they are when they're, they're parades and stuff, and he's like, no, 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 no. They're, they're very far from that. They, this is how they show their affection, and it's in very in a non, you know, way that you think. And I, I think when J, when John was laying on the chest of Jesus, you know, there there's, there was just there was a closeness there, and a comfortability there, and a, but as close as that is, it doesn't even come close to the closeness that we have after Jesus went to the cross, was buried and rose again. Because now he says, if anyone believes in him, he will come in and make his abode in us and be with us forever. We will get that new heart and experience this oneness that used to occur in the garden, but was lost when they sinned. Because sin separates and it caused death to their spirit. And Jesus had to come back and and quicken us and make us alive. Now, wrap this up. So, we're no longer sinners separated from God with a wicked heart. We are now saints with a good heart. 
a new one where God and us live in union. Yes, we still may sin and most likely will, but that's, that's not a heart issue, that's a soul issue. See, your new-hearted self doesn't, it's not connected to the God of this world anymore. That's impenetrable. In order for you to be infected or possessed by a demon or a fallen angel or whatever, they would have to come first to bind the strong man of the house. And the Bible says, greater is he that's in you than anything that's in the world. There's nothing greater than God in you. You have a power in your heart, in your spirit, that's greater than anything. What can go wrong is your thinking. Yeah, I guess that does look good. You see it with your eyes. Yeah, that sounds good. Tastes good. Smells good. Feels good. You could connect with your senses and your body and your mind and you could believe lies. You could choose with your will to believe lies that'll, you know, that could potentially put us into bondage. Um, we can still potentially do that. But in your new-hearted self, where God lives, you might quench that spirit by making carnal, fleshly, worldly decisions, but you're never going to extinguish or repel or remove that spirit you are sealed unto the day of redemption ephesians 4 30 and other passages now i want to close with this last verse so second corinthians three seventeen. now the lord is that spirit kind of interesting how the bible defines the bible the lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty okay What's my mantra? Location, location, location. Where is the Spirit of the Lord? Well, he's everywhere, but where does he choose to live? Because of the forgiveness of the cross. He forgave us in order to fill us, so now he lives in us. And where he is, there is freedom and liberty. Now the question, though, is are we experiencing that freedom and that liberty? You have the resource to have all the freedom and liberty that you can. I'm not knocking any programs, or me as a Christian therapist, I'm not knocking therapy, I'm not knocking any sort of thing, but real freedom and real liberty is gonna come from the liberator. And a lot of times when we believe lies upstairs, not down here in your, in your spirit, that's where we get into bondage. But when we believe the truth about who God is, where God is, and who we are in Christ in relation to him, you can then start to walk in liberty and experience more victory and less defeat. It's freedom. It's good news, my friend. This right here, I'm going to say that is, that'll preach to myself. <laughs> that'll preach. You're doing it. I don't know why you have to be redundant. I am preaching about this. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where is he? He's in you. Why? Because he, he died for your sins. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to get rid of that old heart and to give you a new one. Why does he want to give you a new heart? So he could live in union with you. Why? So you could experience his life, his love, and his liberty, liberty, liberty. <laughs> So we all, with the unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes 
from the Lord, who is that spirit. He's, see, this is the inside job. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So let's stand and be dismissed. Amen? That's all I got for you. Heart transplant. Inside job. It's good news. It's who we are. Jesus, thank you uh, for this promise. And thank you for this reality. And thank you, even if this challenges us, to go and explore this and to keep unpacking all that we got when we got Christ. And Lord, may we, may we learn to experience this liberty and this freedom because you want us to know the truth because it's the truth that doesn't just set us free, it's the truth that makes us free. Thank you for making us free and free indeed because we're connected to you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You are dismissed.